What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back to the Final Four is not on the schedule. He is Rod, I am Cameron. And today we're going to preview Penn State. Um, but before we get into Penn State, Rod, um, you know, uh, Thomas Kithier had only played seven minutes um, in the last game uh, against Nebraska. And they thought that maybe he had COVID. He said maybe he wasn't feeling too good during the game. So uh, what are you hearing on that front? And we've seen a plethora of articles about him testing negative since then. Uh, right. And, and so that would suggest that everything is fine. Uh, I don't know about his availability tomorrow because he was ill. Maybe to back up half a step, the way that this started, if you, if our listeners probably remember, um, you know, and just so everybody knows, we tend to record these things, our post games immediately after the game is over. Mm. Uh, so we don't have the benefit of seeing post game press conferences or, or anything. Um, the podcast on some rare occasions might be a little better informed for waiting, but we like to get it done fresh, you know, while our impressions are fresh. Uh, and so it's up there as soon as it can be for, for the listeners. Uh, but if you remember, you and I were wondering about that. Why did Thomas Kithier not play very much? And, and frankly, when he was out there, he didn't do much against Nebraska. Mm. Um, so it was easy for us to think, well, Izzo just felt that, you know, he was getting more from uh, from Bingham, certainly. But then playing marble as much as he did was a, a little strange. It's, um, as it turns out, Thomas told the staff during the game that he wasn't feeling well. Now, he had tested negative that morning, as their protocol indicates they have to test on, on game day. Um, and uh, he was negative, but... In an abundance of caution, one of the great catchphrases from last year we'll never forget, <laughs> um, they pulled him from the game, and I and I believe he wasn't even on the bench, which I didn't notice at the time, but that's what's been reported um, throughout most of, if not all, of the second half. Izzo mentioned it in the post-game press conference that that's what was going on. As, as you mentioned, um, Cam, uh, he uh, has taken a battery of tests, including PCR tests, uh, in a couple of days since and has tested negative every time. So it appears pretty certain he doesn't have COVID. Frankly, the impact on Michigan State, at least, would be 
minimal because I'm gathering Thomas must be one of the two guys on the team who hasn't tested positive thus far. Um, otherwise, we'd be hearing a story about a reinfection, which, you know, fortunately, knock on wood, to date at least worldwide, seems to be very, very, very rare. Um, but uh, in any event, the fact that he's cleared means not only is there no issue for Michigan State, but there, in terms of anybody else being sick, but it, it looks like uh, there's no impact on the game being played. I've, I've, and, and with him testing negative this many times, I just can't imagine that the game will uh, not go forward as mm. planned. Um, so it appears that MSU is is out of the woods on this. And, and again, the biggest thing is that Thomas isn't positive, so good for him. Um, but again, we don't know about his status uh, because apparently he was ill with something, probably a Given that influenza seems to have fallen off the face of the earth almost literally. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, usually well, we go through a, at least one bout of the team, somebody, you know, a player or two or three coming down with the flu. Well, uh, it's if if you if you look at the statistics, it's worldwide. There's virtually no influenza activity. So, you know, there could be a, there could be a lot of discussion about why that is. And there are people that will claim that the, um, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, meaning masks, distancing, lockdowns, all of that stuff is responsible for it. There might be some truth to that. It could be that in the viral landscape that COVID has kind of elbowed everything else out of the way, Mm -hmm. um, Although I've seen it suggested that there's nothing preventing a person from catching both an influenza virus and a coronavirus simultaneously, who the hell knows? But but the only thing we do know is that influenza is virtually non-existent. I mean, there are some cases, but it's extremely rare this year. It's it's uh, almost impossibly small compared to a normal year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it could be there are certain kinds of other viruses that are associated with the common cold that still have some level of prevalence. And so my non-doctor assumption is that it was probably one of those, a rhinovirus or something of that nature um, that can cause the common cold and also cause things like nausea, vomiting, and and that type of thing. Um, So that's the deal there. Mm. So onward and upward we go with Penn State. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, Penn State comes in – you know they've only played 15 games here, uh, but they're seven and eight uh, overall, four and seven in the conference, uh, and they sort of buried themselves at the beginning. They lost five straight yeah. in the conference, yep. uh, but since then four and two in their last six games. Um, yeah. So I mean, in Jim Ferry's year, uh, first year seems to be a you know, fairly successful. It doesn't seem they've 30 in Ken Palm, so they haven't lost. Uh, a ton of efficiency, uh, and they've actually improved on offense. Twenty three on offense, um, and they've slipped yeah. a little from last year on defense. Fifty nine. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty remarkable, and and yet for as many good things as you would say, and I agree with everything you just said, they're still sitting four and seven in the league, seven and eight overall. Uh, being in the Big Ten helps. You know, if you can get to put it this way, in this year's Big Ten, most likely. If you're even nine and eleven, and maybe even as bad as eight and twelve in the league, mm-hmm. you probably still got a shot at a bid. That's the the depth in this league would suggest it may go ten deep. 
for tournament bids this year. So Penn State is certainly not out of anything in in those terms. Um, but you know, four and seven is four and seven. Now, as noted, they've been much better lately. Four and two over their last six games. Um, unfortunately for them, in this year's Big Ten, that probably means you know, for everybody except Michigan, you go on a hot streak at your own peril because it seems to suggest that negatives are right around the corner. It catches up with you. So uh, I don't know. Uh, but it's a tough situation for them because they lost their best player from last season in Lamar Stevens. They lost their coach very late in the season. As you mentioned, Jim Ferry is an interim. And um, they've still managed to keep this thing afloat. Mm-hmm. So credit to their players, credit to their coaches. Uh, they've done a nice job in making them competitive. And, and this is such a weird year that you, you throw – all the usual thoughts and caveats and standards out the window. I mean, it's not something we've talked about a ton here because we're Michigan State focused, but this is the first week, I believe, since 1961 that Duke, none of Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, or Kansas are ranked in the top 25. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can throw Michigan State into that equation, too, as a regular member of the top 25 over the last 25 years. Um, and uh, it's it's remarkable. It's a, such a strange, strange season. And so one of the concerns that we talked about in the preseason in regard to Penn State was how is this team going to adjust to having their head coach taken away? Now, Jim Ferry was on his staff, so it's not like he was a new voice. But still, we've seen many, many times over the years a dynamic just get ripped apart, you know. Yeah. And sometimes it's gone the other way, in fairness. I mean, the classic story is is Steve Fisher in the NCAA tournament with Michigan in 1989. But there are lots of other examples of that. I remember Randy Ayers took over the Ohio State program um, from Gary Williams kind of in a, you know, in a bolt from the blue. It was a surprise when Gary Williams went back to his alma mater and took the Maryland job. And Randy Ayers got elevated just in time for all Ohio State's young town went to mature. That was the, the Jim Jackson era. Mm-hmm. And um, he had a great run initially with those guys. Um, so we see this sometimes where it works, but just the circumstances, especially because of how late in the year, I, I can't remember for sure. It was no earlier than September. And it might have even been into October when Pat Chambers got fired, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, was pretty late. late. Yeah. Yeah. So um, hats off to them for managing to keep it competitive, you know, which they've certainly managed that. And, again, they're, they're not out of NCAA tournament discussion by any means. Yeah, and they only got – they only wound up getting in four um, non-conference games. Um, right. So they – there wasn't a whole lot going into the Big Ten season. Right. Um, yeah, and that's that's a good point as well. And and maybe that says something. You know, you mentioned that 0-5 start, that it took a little bit of time for them to kind of get their bearings and uh, and figure it out. But, you know, you look at those games. I'm looking at those totals right now. They lost by four to Michigan. They got blown out against Illinois. But then they lost in overtime to Indiana. They lost by eight to Purdue, both of those on the road. And then so Illinois tattooed them by double digits twice. No shame in that. Mm. Very competitive losses to Michigan, Indiana, and Purdue. And then they got healthy. You know, they've got wins over Rutgers, Northwestern, Wisconsin, and Maryland. It should be noted 
that those were all at home. They've yeah. yet to win the away game. So that's also a factor for tomorrow, the fact that the game is at the Breslin Center. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've been competitive in those losses. Um, well, one of them. They lost uh, to Ohio State by four in Columbus, and then Wisconsin beat them by 16. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I guess the point can be made. It took them a little bit of time to find themselves once they hit conference play, in part because they just didn't have much of a non-conference to go on. They didn't play their first game until uh, November 28th, and then, you know, three games in December, and that was it, right, in the Big Ten play. But since then, they've uh, they've definitely found themselves to mm. some extent. Um, so I mentioned 23 on offense, 59 on defense. Um, so if you look at the offense, only a 207 in effective field goal percentage. Uh, but they yeah. have had some success from three, um, where they're shooting 34.9% um, and number 62% of overall points from three. So they're making yeah. them and they're taking a lot. Yep, and that's that's the whole deal offensively. They're, they're at number 268 in two-point percentage. And it shouldn't be a surprise. You know, last year they had Lamar Stevens, certainly, and then, even Mike Watkins, who wasn't a huge usage guy, but still gave them a, a, a threat around the rim as well. Losing those two guys, they didn't really replace them mm-hmm. with anybody who plays a similar game. You know, what they've gone to is even more of a perimeter. They were already small last year with Stevens at the four at six six. They're really small now because at least Lamar Stevens played bigger than his size. They don't have that now, and they don't have anybody with the physical presence of Watkins. They have John Harar, who's having a nice season and is a, a physical body, but he's not the interior presence Mike Watkins was. So maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that they're shooting so poorly inside the arc. It's remarkable to me that a team that's number 23 overall can also be number 207 in effective field goal percentage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The latter number would seem to eliminate the former, but you hit on it. The thing that's helping them is they've been really good from three. 35% as a team, it's not mind-blowing, but it's good. And they take a lot of them. The number 62 in the country in the percentage of their overall offense coming from the three-point shot. So that tells you, as you said, they're taking a lot and they're making a good amount of them. That's That and some decent other numbers is salvaging them. The number 59 in turnover percentage, so doing a pretty good job there. Number 44 in offensive rebounding percentage, which is which is really good. Um, and it may be kind of surprising for a smaller team, mm-hmm. but maybe not. You know, they're aggressive, they're athletic, they kind of fly to the ball, and so that's playing up well for them on the offensive boards. And they shoot 73% at the line. So offensively, besides shooting the two, they do most things pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and defense, um 59 on defense, which is a, a pretty good drop off from the, where they were last year, but 250 in effective field goal percentage. Again, I don't, that overall number is remarkable to me given how bad they are against shooting overall. Mm-hmm. They're 250, as you said, the field goal percentage against, but the big problem is just as it is on offense, it's life inside the arc. They are number 318 in the country against twos. That's bad. <laughs> just as a, yeah, just as yeah. a note for listeners, that's really bad. 
So how how are they able to get to number 59 overall with that big a problem? And that's, you know, we talk about this a lot. The generally accepted wisdom on this front is that defense against twos is the most controllable thing you have. It is the thing that your play as a defensive team has the greatest impact upon. And so if you're bad in that area, that would suggest you're not a very good defensive team, right? But they do some other things reasonably well. The big thing they do is this. They trap a lot, more than other Big Ten teams. The Big Ten traditionally has been a league that doesn't rely very much on what I think of as gimmick basketball is, you know, trapping, full-court pressure, that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think it generally plays well at the highest levels. You know, there, there's a to take it even a step further, there's a reason you don't see teams press in the NBA. It doesn't work against really good players yeah. and against good coaching. Um, tends to be the case at the high major level in D1 basketball as well. But Penn State does a lot of that. Not that it's always full-court pressure, but they'll spring traps in the half court, three quarter court, et cetera. And they are definitely trying to generate turnovers and they're decent at it. The number 96 in that area. Um, number 182 in defensive rebounding, which is certainly not a great number, but it's okay. The, the big thing to me, the culprit for their fall off defensively is what we talked about. Um, in replacing guys like Stevens and Watkins, they've just gotten a lot smaller. They are number 289 in the country in average height. On their team. So that's telling you, I'm not positive of this, but I'm reasonably certain they're the smallest team in the Big Ten. I didn't double check it, but they've got to be. Um, you know, and, and it's even smaller still because the guy who's nominally the foreman for them, Seth Lundy, is 6'6", but he plays smaller than that. You know, Lamar Stevens was a 6'6 guy who could play inside. Mm-hmm. He could give you some of that stuff. Lundy really doesn't. And then they they play three guys off their bench largely. Two of them are guards. The other guy is uh, Trent Buttrick, who's a try-hard 6'8 senior. That's it. So this is a very small team. And so consequently, you shouldn't be surprised that the defensive rebounding isn't great, that they're terrible against twos, and they also don't shoot the two very well because they just don't have much of an interior presence. Uh, in that Nebraska game, Stephen Bardo at one point was talking about all the size in the Big Ten and how it's really important that you have a way to combat that because so many teams can throw, you know, kind of like it was last year. So many teams have post presences with big bodies, legitimately big bodies. You know, you go you go up and down. You know, Nebraska has their two big kids. Who don't always post very much, but they've got good size. You got Coburn, you got Garza, obviously. You have the seven-one kid Robbins at Minnesota. You have um, uh, Dickinson at uh, at Michigan, who's a seven-footer. Um, you know, on and on we go. Even Michigan State can hasn't used the post as much as we'd like, but they do have some legitimate size, particularly with Marcus Bainham at you know six eleven and with a huge you know seven-four wingspan. Maddie Sissoko with a seven-five wingspan. So Michigan State can bring legitimate size. Rutgers with Miles Johnson, Trevion Williams at Purdue. You know, on and on we go. At Trace Jackson Davis at, at Indiana. You know, it, much like last year, virtually every team has a guy that's at least solid and definitely big on the blocks. Um, Penn State is an exception to that. 
Uh, Harar is a decent player, but he's not, he's not really a, a post presence in the way that we're talking about at either end. And they don't have anything behind him either. So that's the Achilles heel. Penn State wants it to be a loose game. They want to, they want to be able to take a lot of threes. They want to, they don't play super, super fast. They're not in that Iowa, Nebraska range. But they want to they want to get up and down a little bit, and what they don't want is they don't want it to be a game that's largely played in the paint because they tend to lose those, uh-huh. and it's natural because they're just not very big. Uh, so you look at the starters: Jamari Wheeler, uh, six foot point senior point guard, um, hasn't been much of a scorer, uh, but is a good defender um, and leader for them. Five point five points a game. 38% from the floor, 39 from three, 57 from the line. Yeah, and he also leads them in assists at 3.7 a game and steals at 1.7 a game, which matters for a team that looks to generate turnovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of the top five guys in the conference in steals. Um, Wheeler, you know, my only criticism of him is, and I've said this the last couple years, he's always shot well. If you look, well, I shouldn't say always, the last couple years for sure. He shot the ball reasonably well, and even this year, I mean, 38, 30, 39 is nothing to sneeze at mm. for a six-foot point guard, particularly the three-point percentage. He just doesn't take very many. Now, it, it's entirely possible, and it might even be probable, that if you increased his usage, his efficiency would decline. So maybe they're playing it smart, and he's playing it smart by not shooting a lot. But if anything, I, I've just been of the opinion that I look at his numbers, and I just think this guy should maybe look to do a little more. Mm-hmm. in their offense but in any event as as was said he's had a real value for them beyond his relative relatively limited scoring because he's such a good defensive player in their system he's a guy who creates mistakes forces mistakes and he does a decent job running the offense very quick player yeah number two in the conference and steal percentage yeah so he must be one of the ones that's really uh, bothering those traps with those traps. Yes. Yeah, and he's aggressive and he's athletic. And so that quick hands, quick feet, he he can create a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Myron Jones, 6'4", junior, uh, he leads them in scoring 14.7 points a game, 41 from the floor, 41 from three, and 76 from the line. Yeah, he's one of my favorite players in the league for the last couple of years running. Um, last year he kind of burst on the scene as a freshman. His contributions were more limited. Miles Dredd, who's now coming off the bench, was the guy in that class that really got a lot of attention yeah. as a perimeter shooter. And then last year Dredd started to drop off and Jones really came on and he was second on the team in scoring. If you remember that game that they beat Michigan State at Breslin, uh, he was just insane. Yeah. And, and it was that he was hitting at a high percentage and I think he's got, he and CJ Frederick are the two guys that I think are the best shooters in the league. And it's a combination of two things. Their percentages obviously are great. Um, but they also have very, very quick releases. They're hard to limit. Mm-hmm. You know, Michigan State going into this game, we'll talk about it in the keys. One big, big key is they've got to limit the three as best they can. Uh, it is very difficult to do that against Myron Jones because He's got such a quick release. He doesn't need a lot of space. You know, you really don't 
when they when you talk about recovery time, meaning how quickly can a defender recover from being out of position to close and contest on a shooter, you just really don't have very much opportunity against him. You kind of have to be there on the catch mm. with him because he's got that kind of trigger. And, and as I say, I think to me, you know, this is a guy who's right up there with anybody in the conference in terms of being a, a legitimate perimeter threat. And yet it's not the entirety of his game. He's not even taking 50% of his shots overall from three. So he's becoming a little more versatile as a scorer, but I think it's as a three point shooter that he does the most damage. Yeah. And also uh second on the team in steals 1.4 game. Yeah. Again, active defender, got a little size at six, four decent athlete. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to like in his game. Uh, and then Isaiah Brockington, 6'4 junior, um, who's elevated to the starting lineup this year, uh, but he's been key for them. 14.6 points a game, uh, which is second on the team. 44 from the floor, 35 from three, and 79 from the line. Yeah, he's really taken a jump. Last year was his first season at Penn State after he transferred in, and he was an energy guy. You know, he was a guy that they brought in off the bench. He played a big role, played a lot of minutes, but he wasn't the most efficient offensive player, wasn't a great shooter. He got a lot done with energy and, you know, 6'4 and, and good athleticism. He has some tools to work with. This year he's gone way up the level. I did not see this coming. If you would have told me that he'd be their second leading scorer, you know, knocking on the door 15 points a night, I would have been a little surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's been a really positive surprise for them. Decent shooting numbers, as you said, 44, 35, 79. You can roll with that. You know, he's a guy who kind of is a, he's a good transition scorer on the wing. He can do some things inside the arc on a team that doesn't get a lot of production that way. Um, and he also grabs 4.7 rebounds per game. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then Seth Lundy, 6'6", sophomore, 11.7 points a game, 4.3 rebounds, uh, 38 from the floor, 30 from three, 85 from the line. He got off to a really good start this year. I saw that game, or at least I saw most of it, where they were up huge and then gave the lead away against Seton Hall, which was mm-hmm. their one conference loss. And Seth Lundy was unconscious in that game. He was just crazy effective shooting the three. He was pretty good at it last year. This year, it's been a little bit of a dip, you know, kind of a, I wouldn't say entirely a sophomore slump because he's still giving them almost 12 points a game. He's grabbing 4.3 boards. So it's not a disaster, but I think they thought he would be more efficient. Um, fortunately for them, you know, they've had a guy like Brockington really step up and be better than expected, which is made up for a little bit of that. But, you know, Lundy's been okay. I think they thought he had more to give, though. Yeah, And he's not really replacing, you know, he's the guy who's replacing Lamar Stevens at the four spot. And he's been, you know, he's been solid, but he's just not the presence that Lamar Stevens was as a defender or as a rebounder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then John Harar, 6'9", senior, 8.7 points a game, 8.4 rebounds. 59% from the floor, 68% at the line. He's a he's a good player. I mean, I mentioned he's not a guy who really worries you as a post threat, um, and I think that's true. But the production numbers are solid. You, you couldn't, if you're a Penn State fan or a coach on that team, I don't think you could have asked more than what he's given you. If, if you've been told in October, 
hey, you're going to get nine points and eight and a half boards out of Harar this year per game. You take that. Mm. You know, this is a guy who's, he was way back when they recruited him. He had committed somewhere, I think it was maybe Army. It was one of the service academies for football. And then he ended up at the last minute deciding to play basketball at Penn State on scholarship. He got an offer and took it. And he's always played from the time he was a freshman. He's always in their rotation. But they had Mike Watkins for a lot of that time. And, and although Mike Watkins was an enigma, he was still a big-time talent. And so Harar was always the reserve. He was always the backup option. Last season, his minutes got more to the equitable level with uh, – with Watkins, but still, he was the guy you kind of looked to to hold the fort down, not the guy that you were looking to to really, really impact the game for you. Well, now he's all they've got. He's the only real center. You know, 6'9", he probably goes about 245 or so. Um, so he has good size, and the rebounding numbers are good. The shooting numbers are good. He plays within himself. He hasn't, I don't think he's taken a three all year. Um, so he doesn't do anything he's not capable of doing. Uh, doesn't try to, rather. Um, nice season, just not, doesn't have the tools to be an elite interior player. But I promise you this, Tom Izzo would take this year's John Herrera <laughs> on his team. Yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. He's got he, that what toughness. he gives Penn State is kind of what's been lacking at that five spot for MSU, which is consistent production. Mm. Uh, and then coming off their bench, Sam Sessoms, uh, six foot junior transfer from Binghamton. Uh, 9.5 points a game, 44 from the floor, 38 from three, and 61 from the line. Yeah, you know, nice addition for them. Um, Physically, you know, he's got the same size as Wheeler. He's not really a point guard, though. Sessoms is a guy very much as a scorer, and he's given them that. He's kind of he's kind of filled that role with Brockington elevated to the starting lineup. I feel Sessoms is the energy guy on this year's team. Mm. He's the guy that come in to just inject a little bit of speed, some aggression, and he's been reasonably productive. You know, 44-38, pretty good from the floor. 61% at the line, you'd like to see a little better than that from a guard, but um, overall that has been a key part of this team because he's giving them that production off the bench. Uh, and then Miles Dredd, 6'6", junior, 6.8 points a game, 38 from the floor, 35 from three, uh, 89 from the line. Uh, but he's just seen his minutes decrease over the last three years, every year. Yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah, well, I think it's that, you know, they've had some guys come in and pass him. That's the long and the short of it. As a freshman, they needed him to step in. They had more experience in their backcourt. If you remember, that was, um, oh, God, what was the kid's name? Was it Tony Jones, their Tony, point guard? Oh, Tony Carr. Tony Carr. Tony Carr yep. was a really, really good player. And they had some other guys, too. They had some veterans. And Dredd was the young guy who kind of forced his way into that rotation. And, you know, as I said, as freshman, he was playing more than Myron Jones. Mm-hmm. But Jones' game elevated. Um, Brockington and now Sessoms transferred in. So they took roles and have kind of jumped Dredd. I think he's still got some good play in him and certainly he's a he's a capable enough shooter that you can't ever rule out that he might have a game where he goes four for five from three and scores 15 points and beats you but yeah you're right his role has decreased the other thing is Penn State 
and and we can see this when we we're only going to talk about eight guys. So they got a tight rotation to begin with, and then Dread and the next guy, Trent Buttrick, aren't playing that much. This mm-hmm. is a team that really kind of concentrates. Their their top six guys, the starters and then Sessoms, are really the core, and then Dread and Buttrick kind of fill in, and that's it. So they do not go deep. Yeah. Uh, and Buttrick, 6'8", is the only really big, other big guy, any, you know, over 6'6", that plays. Um, he's a senior, 2.6 points a game, 3.3 rebounds, 39 from the floor, 30 from three, 80 from the line. Yeah. Um, you know, he's given them what he's got to give. Buttrick is a former walk-on. So this is not a guy you're coming in with great expectations for, right? And they desperately need size behind Harar. I mean, th- this is it. They don't really have anybody else who even approximates a post player mm-hmm. who's in the rotation. Uh, and so Buttrick is that guy. Not huge minutes, but he's given them just enough. Um, you know, in, on a night where you got Harar in some foul trouble, it could really be a problem though, mm-hmm. for Penn. They've avoided that for the most part this season, but yeah, just not a lot of depth on this team. Um, so that is one of the issues if they were to get into the wrong kind of game, but thus far they've largely been able to avoid that. Well, so the keys, Rod, uh, turnovers, number one after that um, disaster yeah. against Nebraska, 22. Yeah, it's that says it all, right? You have a 22 turnover game. It's back to the top of the charts. Um, in part because of that, in part because Penn State's defense is predicated on this. Yeah, they're going to try is, to turn you over. They are going to try to turn you over. So, uh, you know, the other thing is, given how Penn State has taken care of the ball this season, you know, it was it was not as big a factor as it might have been otherwise in the Nebraska game because Nebraska had 17 of their own. So the gap wasn't huge. It wasn't like it was a 22 to 12 gap. You know, in this game, if you turn it over 22 times, you probably are looking at that kind of differential. And that's something Michigan State just can't afford. Uh, and so number two key, guard the arc. Yeah. Uh, Penn State, as we talked about, offensively is a team built around the three. Um, that is what they are best at. That's what they're most efficient at. That's what they will look to do because they really lack efficiency inside the arc. So I think this is a game where if you're Michigan State, your emphasis has to be to take away the deep shot as much as possible. Here's a positive. I know positives have been few and far between this year, but if I had to draw up on paper the right kind of team for Michigan State defensively, to be most likely to have success against, it probably would be a team that looked like Penn State. And the reason I say that is, if you look at the teams in Big Ten play that have come in shooting the ball from three well and and who had it as a big part of their offense, generally speaking, Michigan State's done a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly lately, if you look at really both of the Rutgers game, even the one where Michigan State got blown out, Rutgers didn't kill them. Yeah. From three. And in the first game, MSU just shut them down. And that was at a point Rutgers was shooting like 39% as a team. Against Purdue, 
pretty good job, even in the loss, limiting the threes. Um, against Iowa, in the loss, pretty good job limiting the threes. Ohio State did not bust them from three. Um, and then, obviously, the game against Nebraska, they did a good job. So the difference, I think, between this Penn State team, though, and some of those teams that we noted MSU kind of held in check from three, but they still lost the game, is those teams had post-presence, you know? Um, Rutgers, Miles Johnson had a really big game that kind of set the tone in that second meeting, right? Um, Purdue, we know what Trevion Williams did in the second half in that game. Uh, Iowa obviously had Luca Garza, you know. Ohio State, EJ Liddell had a huge game. So those teams all had answers. Like, okay, you're limiting us from three. We've got other cards to play. I'm not sure Penn State does. You know, Harar is a nice player having a nice season. Even given that, I'm going to be surprised if he's really able to go off against Michigan State. You know, I, I don't see him having a 20-point night in this game. So none of that's a guarantee. Michigan State's still got to go out and execute it. But if I, looking at this Michigan State team and say, what have they done best defensively? I would probably lean toward, you know, at least in Big Ten play, taking away the three, limiting the, the looks you get and making sure that the shots you take are contested. I think they've been pretty good in that area. And if you combine that with an offense that maybe doesn't have the other option, you know, to go to the post, that could be a winning combination. So that's something to watch. I, I will go this far. If Michigan State really limits Penn State, like let's say they limit the attempts decently and they keep them, you know, 30% or less, the odds of a Michigan State win are, are very high. Hmm. Uh, and then interior scoring. Um, I mean, gosh, even with this one, you're looking at Malik Hall, Thomas Kithier having size advantages. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's all around the roster with the, the possible exception of times at the five. You know, if you've got, if you've got Kithier, um, being guarded by, uh, Harar, okay, Harar's bigger than Kithier, but other than that, you know, the other guys, even Marble is probably about a draw physically with Harar, maybe slightly shorter. Um, but the bottom line is Penn State's small and the statistics tell you they are getting shredded against the two. So I'm not going to call it post-ups. I'm going to give that up for, for a game. Let's call it interior scoring because maybe you get it via penetration too. Mm -hmm. But one way or the other, if you can get the ball around the rim against Penn State, I think you can have a lot of success. They have, they are as bad as I might be the worst defensive team in the league against the two. I think they they might even be worse than Iowa and Nebraska in that area. And so again, it's remarkable they're as good as they are overall defensively with that Achilles heel. Uh, but if you can survive it, it's kind of a a much more moderate version of Illinois in the early Underwood era. If you can survive the pressure and they don't turn you over, you can get great looks. Mm. It's not quite as all or nothing as those Illinois teams were, but the effect is at least roughly similar. So to me, somehow, some way, Michigan State's got to get the ball to the basket. And if they do that, they should have a great opportunity to win. Uh, and then the fourth key, handle the traps. Uh, right. This is 
seems like a big one for me. Um, for sure. For sure. I think the game probably turns on it. Um, you know, Michigan State this year, when they faced pressure, I, I think, I'm of the opinion that most of their troubles have been similar to other Michigan State teams over the years who have had turnover issues. When they've had them, they've largely come as a result of their own mistakes. You know? That's not exclusively. You have to give the other team some credit. But you look at that Nebraska game, man, that was was definitely more than 50% Michigan State. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? And, And so the corollary to that is when teams have been actively trying to force them into mistakes, over the years they've generally done decently. This year's team just hasn't faced a lot of that. Yeah. So it's I'm trying to think in the non-conference who really threw a lot of pressure at them, and it's I'm not coming up with anything. Uh, I guess Eastern Michigan was kind of aggressive in their matchup in the opener, which seems like a lifetime ago, but um, they did force some mistakes that way. But that was the opener, and that's kind of a junk defense. You don't see a lot. It's a little different. Um, but if if Michigan State can't handle the pressure, if they're turning it over a lot, that's a big problem because you're giving Penn State easy baskets most likely and live ball turnovers like that. And obviously you're, you're also not getting shots on your own end to try to score. Um, the other thing I would say is when MSU has faced even kind of token pressure, like you think about that second Rutgers game. Yeah. Rutgers yeah. really wasn't pressing to turn them over, but they were very Slow effective. And you mentioned that you would have liked to have seen Michigan State attack more. And I yeah. I think in that game, the way Rutgers played it, that was maybe easier said than done, but there is a good point here overall. This Michigan State team, when it's dealt with anything like that, it's largely survived pressure. It hasn't punished it. Yeah. And, and you'd like to see them punish it more. If no other reason, then you're getting easy scoring opportunities, which this team can really use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then defensive boards. Yeah. I mentioned Penn State, despite their lack of size, number 44 in the country in offensive rebounding rate. So they've done a good job there. It goes without saying, or it should, in any game, you can't give the opposition too many second chances. I think for Michigan State in this one, again, if if they can do a good job limiting the threes, Penn State's likely going to have some trouble shooting the ball. If they're taking a lot of twos or they're taking contested kind of forced threes because Michigan State's not giving up good looks, they're going to miss a lot of shots. That's a pretty safe bet. If that's the case, then you've got to close those possessions off. You can't force misses and give Penn State easy second chances. And so that's a big deal. Michigan State has to be on it as a defensive rebounding unit. Uh, well, you know, much like the Nebraska win, or yeah, the, the win against Nebraska, this one's a definite must win. When you look at the schedule, you know, you still got Michigan, you still got Iowa, um, still got, uh, what, I think another Ohio State. Um, yeah, yeah, you got Illinois twice. Yeah. So, you've got, games like this, you've got Illinois to once. win. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, and you're right. It's, there are no more gimmies. Like this might be 
the easiest game Michigan State has on the rest of the schedule when you factor in that they're at home and the team they're playing relative to everybody else. But that that's all relative. It doesn't mean it's easy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get this, you're four and seven, and then you know maybe you can start at, at least thinking about all right. If we can string together a few, get a couple big wins, then maybe you can talk about getting back in the conversation um, for the tournament. But you got to get this one first. Mm-hmm. We're still in that mode where, as I've been saying, it's it's one game at a time now. And it's more about, to me at least, it's at least as much about how well you're playing as it is about results. So they need to play well. I I don't think they can beat Penn State playing the same kind of game they played against Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I think if they come out with that kind of effort, that kind of execution, they will get beat. Yeah. Um, and I think Penn State is a, an energetic team, so that means MSU. You know, the feeling was in the MSU camp, they felt other than a guy like Gabe Brown, you know, and, and Josh Langford, I suppose, they were a little flat. Um, and didn't have the kind of energy they'd hope to have against Nebraska. They can't afford that in this game. Penn State is going to play hard, and they've got athletes. Mm. So they they know because they lack size, they really can't afford to play without high-level energy. So they're likely to bring it. Mm. Um, and they've got guys, you know, Brockington, Sessions, um, uh, Wheeler, who are energy guys, Harare even on the interior. They just they play hard. That's what they do. So MSU's got to match that. If they can do that, and they can do some of the things we talk about, limiting their success from three, um, and uh, and getting the ball to the basket when MSU is on offense, I think they got a great chance at winning. But you know, again, it's one game at a time, and can they play better? They need to play a lot better than they did against Nebraska. Hopefully, we'll see them do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing, Rod, uh, about this. Keon Coleman, who's uh, been recruited by the football team, um, yeah. was like a three-star wide receiver, I think, um, out of Louisiana, 6'4", uh, but also a basketball player. Uh, yeah. And it looks like uh, Izzo's going to give him a chance to come on to the basketball team. And then turns around and gets a 40-point game the other night, almost a quadruple double uh, in yeah. high school. What are and, your thoughts on this? We haven't seen well, a high school player for a while now that uh, went from football also and basketball. He he also had a 61-point game earlier this season. So he's yeah. put up some gaudy numbers. But but here's one thing. I can't speak to the level of competition he's playing. Mm-hmm. Um, Louisiana is generally a pretty good basketball state. Um, it's, not, it's not the same quality it is in football where it's a great talent-producing state. Um, but it's pretty good, particularly the New Orleans area. It always seems to turn out talent. Um, I don't know. I've seen clips of some of his games, and it's he's athletically impressive. You could certainly say that. Uh, it's hard for me to tell a lot about who he's playing against. Mm-hmm. I, people eternally get started doing backflips over two sport guys. It's just one of those things that, and it, it really seemed to start in earnest, in my opinion, um, with Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders, mm-hmm. who were legitimately great two sport athletes, both obviously 
huge impact players in college and football, and then both became major leaguers. Bo Jackson, more impactful than Deion Sanders, but, but Deion Sanders was a decent baseball player too. So that really, I think, fired the imagination of people. And then over the years, we've had the odd guy. Charlie Ward Ward. was really good as a quarterback and a point guard for Florida State. And and I would suggest, and this relates to what I'm going to say about Keon Coleman, I would suggest that Charlie Ward is actually the most remarkable two-sport player I've seen, certainly in college. And in the NBA, he played for the Knicks, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I don't think he played pro football. Um, and here's why for as good, you know, Deion Sanders and Bo Jackson, it was football, baseball. So you start with Kirk Gibson was that way at Michigan state too. So was Steve Garvey. So Michigan state had guys who did that also. Gibson especially was dominant. You know, mm-hmm. one of the all great athletes in MSU history, uh, in both sports. Um, but I think in terms of playing basketball for the most part, where, where I have seen guys have success has been the kind of guys like Matt Trannon at Michigan State or Julius Peppers at North Carolina. I think when you don't play basketball all year round, um, the skills that can translate quickest and best from not playing to playing are the things that your physical tools and your energy and toughness can impact the most. Right. So look at Matt Trannon. What did MSU ask Matt Trannon to do? They asked him to rebound and defend. They didn't ask him to go out and create a lot of shots for himself. Mm-hmm. His scoring was largely, you know, transition or garbage baskets, the little bit of scoring he did. Julius Peppers at North Carolina, same deal. Both of those guys were like six six. They are a little early in the process, but undersized four men. Um, Matt Trannon, by the way, was at a younger age before he became an elite football recruit, was like a top 10 guy in his class nationally in basketball. So he was really, 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 really good at a certain point. Um, so he's not the normal situation either. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where Peppers was ranked, but he was very effective in basketball in North Carolina in a similar role. I get suspicious when people talk about perimeter guys making that, do, pulling that off. Mm. And the reason I say that is anybody who's played basketball will tell you, what is the first thing that goes with long layoffs? Touch. Yep. Shooting touch. It's a rhythm-based thing. And when you're not doing it, it's hard to just have that come back at the drop of a hat. That's why I say Charlie Ward is probably the most impressive example I've ever seen. Because somehow he was able to pull that off. He went straight from quarterbacking. And Florida State, you know, in those days was a perennial, I'm assuming, during his career. They were often, if not always, playing on New Year's Day. Mm. So it was late in the year when he got – it wasn't like this football season ended the first week of December. And he joined the team. It was like he was dropped right right into the middle of ACC play. And he was really good as a point guard. That is remarkable. That does not happen very often. Mm. Um, and so a lot of times you hear guys talked about it this way, and it rarely comes to fruition when they're perimeter players. I don't want to pour water on Keon Coleman mania. Um, 
he's as I say, from the clips I've seen, he is very impressive athletically. Mm-hmm. He seems, from what I've seen, to fancy himself a combo guard. Again, I need to see that. <laughs> what what I've seen of him, he can jump really well, and it looks like he's got a decent jumper. Mm-hmm. It looks like he can shoot a little bit, and he's six four. So great tools to work with, right? But if you're asking me, what do I expect out of him as a basketball player? I would say what I expect is nothing, zero. Mm-hmm. I don't expect anything because I I just don't know how much. First of all, I'm not sure what he actually is as a basketball prospect. I, he is not a guy who was ranked highly as a basketball player. From what I know, did not play um, on the major AAU circuits. So you don't have that going. What you've got is a lot of gaudy production in high school. That can mean something, or maybe it doesn't mean as much as you might think it means. Um, but I, I just think the biggest thing, regardless, is the time he's going to spend away from the sport just makes it very, very difficult for someone at his position to succeed. I hope I'm wrong. I hope the kid comes in and is a great contributor. It'd be nice. But it, I just It wouldn't be something that affects the scholarships either. Because he would already no, be on exactly. That's why it would be nice. So it's just That's like a net nice. gain if he can give you anything. Yeah, absolutely. It's no different than a walk-on in that respect, you know. Mm-hmm. When Michigan State, you know, got a lot of good basketball his his senior year out of Colby Wallman. That was huge because that was just a gift, you know. Yeah. You didn't know, that was a non-scholarship guy who was actually able to contribute for you. Uh, you know, and where it's been more common for Michigan State is – Guys who aren't on scholarship while they're developing, you know, um, Kenny Goins, obviously the, the prime example, but other guys like Austin Thornton, Tim Bogracus, um, those guys are also, um, uh, you know, very, very important for Michigan State because they joined the program as preferred walk-ons. So they didn't cost them a scholarship. And then over time, they developed into guys who were scholarship worthy. Mm. So if it yeah if it if it plays out and Keon Coleman can produce that's fantastic because you're getting a free player. I just I with guys in this situation it comes up periodically where people talk about being two two sports stars. Mm-hmm. Um, the one guy who he didn't pull it off he wanted to and I'm generally a fan of most of what Nick Saban did at Michigan State but I'll tell you one thing I'm not a fan of. Antonio Gates, the <laughs> Hall of Fame tight end with San Diego Chargers, came to Michigan State on a football scholarship, but with an understanding that he could play both sports. And let me tell you something. Antonio Gates could play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He didn't play. And people may remember, you know, when, when he got to Michigan State, Nick reneged, wasn't going to let him play basketball. He decided he didn't want to play football anymore at least not for Nick Saban, and he transferred to Kent State where he led them to an Elite Eight. And anybody who saw him in high school at Detroit Central, um, he led Detroit Central to a state title, and he was a phenomenal basketball player. Again, one of those guys that I think was a bit of what I'm talking about, he might have had a chance to actually be really good even if he was still playing football Mm full-time because he was like 6'5", but strong as a bull, and yet very skilled. 
I don't know if his shooting would have been at the same level, but I have no doubt that Antonio Gates would have still been an effective basketball player at Michigan State, even as a part-time guy, because he could have done enough of the dirty work things mm-hmm. to contribute. Um, you know, and then obviously he decides to play pro football after he was done playing basketball at Kent State. He's a Hall of Famer. But <laughs> that, that's the one that got away. If you're a two-sport, I've seen guys, I should, while we're talking about this, I mean, the, the classic example of it not working and maybe illustrating the point I'm trying to make, Andre, Andre Rise. Yeah. yeah. Anybody who saw Andre Rise and play basketball at Flint Northwestern knows he truly is one of the all-time great high school point guards in the state. He didn't have gaudy, the gaudy numbers that some guys had because he had so much talent. He had Jeff Grayer and Glenn Rice and Anthony Pendleton. He had a ton of pros or high major D1 guys around him. That, that Flint Northwestern group is one of the all-time best. They're the best high school team I've ever seen. Mm. I, I'm not old enough to have seen the Spencer Haywood, Ralph Simpson, Detroit Pershing teams, but mid-80s Flint Northwestern is as good as I've ever seen. And Andre Risen was a huge part of that. Andre Risen played football at Michigan State, and then there was a point during Judd's regime where they were having real issues, and Andre Risen decided to go out and play a little basketball, and he was terrible. And it's not that he wasn't capable. If Andre Risen had been a full-time basketball player, I think he could have been, at the very least, a good high major point guard based on where I remember. Mm. But he just he was he didn't have any he didn't have any game left. He was out of rhythm. He hadn't been playing. Mm. So that's that kind of thing is why I'm skeptical of Keon Coleman. But I hope I'm wrong, and I hope they get a freebie on that, and they find a guy who can actually help. There's nothing wrong with taking the shot. I mean, what does it hurt you right. if he comes out? Right? There's no negative to it. So mm-hmm. I don't. I shouldn't be raining all over the parade. I'm just saying, if you're coming into this expecting that, hey, we just got a guy who could be a double-digit scorer, probably not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'll see. Uh, so this one's tomorrow, seven o'clock, ESPN two. Uh, any final thoughts heading into? Yeah, this one, one more, one more thing, real quick before we go, which I don't think we've talked about. Have we talked about Matt Ishbia? No, I don't. We haven't. Have. No, that's an amazing. Probably deal. should. The thirty yeah. was it thirty-two million? Uh, yeah, thirty. He took million. He, thirty-two million dollar donation, much of which is going to the football program, um, but they're renaming the court at Brazil in the Tom Izzo court. Uh, there's $2 million going to Izzo at his discretion to spend on the program. I would anticipate, you know, Michigan State is in really good shape in general in terms of their facilities, the locker rooms, the practice facility, you know, players and parents lounge, all of those things. A weight room, obviously, Draymond Green set straight a couple of years back. But it's an arms race. Mm-hmm. in college basketball maybe a little less so at the moment because of covid but it's an arms race and um it's always good to have the ability to keep up with the joneses and matt ishbia a former walk-on was a member of the 2000 national championship team a huge gift so a great positive for msu and and one of its former players giving back in an unprecedented way and, and that's saying something to michigan state mm-hmm. because you look at the gifts that the, the Draymond Greens and the Steve Smiths have made to Michigan State over the years. To say it's unprecedented is saying something. Yeah. I mean, $32 million is unbelievable. I don't know what it is about Michigan State pumping out these guys for uh, mortgage companies, but now they have, what, two of the <laughs> yeah. top four guys in the country. Yeah. 
for Morgan. With Dan Gilbert, right, yeah. who, who has also been a donator to Michigan State. But I think the Ishbia thing is obviously, you know, Dan Gilbert, that's special, but Matt Ishby as a former player and, and as a guy who was on that one of the two national championship teams. Mm-hmm. That, and, and also, by the way, a guy who I believe at last count employs four or five former MSU players, Mateen Cleaves, Antonio Smith, Chris Hill. I think Anthony Iani works for him now, and I may be missing one other guy, um, but a bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. Some of whom were not his teammates, by the way, work for him. So, um, yeah, you can't say enough good things about him. Yeah, another interesting part of that donation is um, a big part of it, I think, what, $2 million goes towards um, student-athletes connecting them to jobs and such after um, yep. they leave, which yep. is really cool. That's, that's, a, that's a, a cool thing to do. Yeah, hats off to him, and it's just – Boy, you know, if you needed it, it's yet another sign of the culture that Michigan State basketball has built to have guys who feel compelled to give back at that level. You know, just so people know that doesn't happen everywhere. It doesn't happen most places. Yeah, and he specifically cited Izzo. Um, Yeah, you know, that's hugely influential. Right. Mm. Okay. Well, yeah, that was awesome. Thirty-two million. My goodness. Uh, All right. So this one's seven o'clock. I guess that's that'll do it for for Penn State. Until next time, uh, the Final Four is not on schedule. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.